we want to get through text, put certain uh, parts of the Book of Romans in place. So it's going to be a little bit more of an academic study. Um, one of the things that I'm becoming aware of is that it's great to have revelation or new revelation on some deep meaning of Scripture at times. But we have to be careful because we're so blessed that the Lord is continuously opening up and mining uh, the Scriptures for us that we should not fall into the trap where we are waiting for the big reveal and not just looking at what is written. So although we love teaching by revelation, we are prophetic teachers. That's, that's, so the moment that you have a prophetic teacher, you have a tendency where we reveal the mysteries of the word, and that's good. Yes. But at times, at times we just have to teach the word. And so um, I did feel a cautioning that although the Lord will always give us revelation, mm. I don't want uh, you guys to sit and wait for the big wow moment. And then possibly miss some of the The rest. fact that what it says is what it says, and that's really cool. Did everybody understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Sometimes we're just reading it and it's like, where's the revelation on it? <laughs> but just looking at it together, putting a piece of scripture just in its proper place <laughs> with its obvious meaning is, is, is good enough. It's sometimes. a miracle in itself that we're able to do that. So now, I'm going to, we're both going to have to um, really concentrate and make a big effort <laughs> not to bring too many big revelations into this teaching today. We're going to try us. our best. <laughs> so can everybody right now pray that there's no big revelations in this teaching? Who wants to pray that? Pray for us for self-control. <laughs> okay, so we're going to look at <clears throat> continue to look at faith in the book of uh, Romans, because I don't feel that we've finished mm. with the faith of Abraham. And then we're going to look at um, partly chapter 2, chapter 3, that uh, deals with sin. And how, because have you noticed a uh, big part of the beginning of the book of Romans, he's explaining how sin entered the world and death. And uh, has anybody found it quite complicated? I certainly. I remember when I started reading the Bible, you, you know, you start from chapter one, and I remember I would get to like chapter five and go like, oh, okay, wait, something looks familiar. <laughs> but before that, what is happening? Okay. So that's what we're going to, uh, to have a look at. The parts of chapter 2 especially can be quite complicated. So we're going to look at that. Okay. But first, as we're going through uh, the book of Romans, we're obviously heading towards chapter 8. Okay, so we did chapter 9. We're heading towards chapter 8 because chapter 8 is the, the really deep revelation of God's plan. And we know that the big reveal in chapter 8 is 
election and predestination, together with glory. Uh, the sons of God's God being revealed and, and everything that goes with that. But let's relook at the seed. Just a quick explanation to recap on the seed. So we see the seed all through the Bible, from the beginning in Genesis, and it carries all the way through. Um, we're going to relook at the seed because you. Uh, I want you to explain to them what it's not supposed to be. Okay, can you do that? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> right now. Mm. Okay. No, we'll do it tomorrow. Oh. Good thing I made sure then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> obviously when we started our study in Romans chapter 9, also 10 and 11, uh, there was a big focus on election, predestination, but the election side of it. And, uh, you know, we would say like we're not preaching election, we're just telling you what it says, that kind of thing. But... And so obviously, <clears throat> to better understand the election truth, you have to have the seed truth in place. But the seed truth is not there to defend or prove election. Election flows from the seed. So election is true because the seed is true, not the other way around. So we don't want to try and prove election by using the seed. It's the other way around. So if you will, the seed is an eternal state. It's an eternal truth. It's something that's eternally in place in the finished work. It, is, it forms part, gives form to the finished work. As that reflects back onto our planet, onto our earth and into our time, we see it sh being shadowed by election. So election is the outworking in our time and in our atmosphere of something that is eternally true, which we know as the seed. And so we don't want to get stuck on election as the big thing. It's a stepping stone to get to a bigger, bigger truth. Okay, so... If you have the seed of a thorn, thistle bush, whatever. But cool, what do you mean? The bulkies, the bulkies. What is it, the bulkie? Are those little ones that you run thorn. in the grass and then That's you stick in them? Nice. So if you take that seed, <laughs> then. Nice. <laughs> you take that devil thorn. <laughs> nice, yeah. Take that. Okay, so God didn't decide to make it a devil thorn one day, and it once was a good seed, and now it's not. It's just that's the devil thorn. It's the seed of the plant that it came from, and it's going to just grow. Out of it will grow the same plant. Okay, so now we understand seed according to people in our time but do we we've got to understand it in this way so messiah yahushua is go through those just read through those scriptures let's start here these ones yeah first okay well actually okay let me just put this one in place and then we go from there yeah. so okay. in galatians which we're coming back to later 
in Galatians <coughs> chapter 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. So to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, but that seed is Messiah. It's not all the seeds. Okay. So just pause. We all know how many little books have been written on Gotikum books. You can, if anybody that's been going there for years will notice that there's always a little book somewhere, a new publication with the promises of God for you. <laughs> the promises of God for women and the promises of God for men and for the promises parents. of God for parents and the promises of God for children. And wives and husbands and the church and elders and da da da. Have you ever seen a book called Promises of God for the Elect? Because <laughs> <laughs> the promises of God, they, all the books are the promises of God for you. Okay. There's a good reason I'm not going to buy any of those. Because the title tells you they didn't understand what they were writing. Does it say the promise was made to the seed, not the seeds? Does it say that in the Bible? It says the promises were made to the seed. Okay. Now what promises? So they've collected all kinds of promises out of the Bible, but actually it's all about the promise that God makes to Abraham and the seed in Abraham. So Yahushua is the seed. Right? The seed. So if you go through all the overcomings in the book of Revelation, He has overcome. So that we can overcome. But we're not going to overcome externally from Him on our own. Because it would be impossible. So we overcome in Him because He has overcome the world. Alright? So the promises... You have been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Messiah. Okay, so all the promises in, in the Bible that they've so nicely collected together is the promise to the seed, to the body of Messiah. So it becomes very easy to understand if we his body, then the head isn't going to have um, promises that the body doesn't have. But the body cannot have the promises it's been made to him. It's, he's the head. Does it make sense? Okay, so he's the seed. And how does the seed work? Okay, you have to have an apple tree to get an apple. So what came first, the apple or the apple tree? I'm going to assume the tree. So God created the trees, and then for the tree to continue... He, God created a seed with the DNA of the... So, if you take an apple seed, there's a little tree inside, did you know? If you cut it open, there you will find... A miniature, like a mini bonsai, a bonsai bonsai apple tree. Really, really, that's how it works. If you cut open a tomato seed, mm. inside there's a little tomato plant. Baby Have you seen it? That's where baby tomatoes come from. That's why you're not supposed to eat the seeds. Because <laughs> you'll end up with a tree in your stomach. I thought that was true about broccoli. That's what I convinced myself. I said, I don't want a tree in my stomach. Whatever continues growing, <laughs> the leaves will sprout out of my throat. 
<laughs> okay. So inside that seed is the DNA, the potential for an apple tree, right? Okay. So is there any chance you're going to plant an apple seed and get a lemon tree? No. So when we've got to be, it's, it's, it's simple and yet complicated when we see seed in the Bible. Okay, so first there was Yahushua. Then he creates Adam as the physical manifestation of him. Because we were created in God's image and likeness. Okay. Now, if it so happened that God created Adam as the original and the seed was all going to be Adam's seed, then we could never be restored to God's image because actually he put the seed in Adam. But the seed is, has to be Yahushua because if the seed in Adam was not Yahushua, then when the promises were made to the seed, then we would have been separated from the promise. Does it make sense? Okay. Does it make any sense? You sure? Sure. Okay. So, Yahushua is the seed. And what is, what's, what's the thing with seed? Is you, it has to be, it, seed comes from seed comes from seed. So, even if the even if the original plant dies, it's like the plant continues to live. There's fruit. And in the fruit is the seed. But now the thing is, we are the original seed. Why? Now this is what we need to understand. In the end of time, when this world has passed away, then we are all in Messiah. You cannot be saved if you're not in Messiah. If you are separate from Messiah, then that means you will be lost. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you're not in Messiah, what are you? You might be, you might be potential, you might be seed, but the seed hasn't germinated yet. Because if, if, if I could be made acceptable outside of Messiah, then you have two seeds. Hmm. Or two standards of... Two standards of what is... Exactly. Does it make any sense? Okay, so if you're not in Messiah, if you haven't been baptized in Messiah, what are you? Lost. Dead in your sin. Condemned. Crisp. 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 Burned. <laughs> Fried. Anyways. Okay, so okay, so I'm hoping that just a short explanation on seed. So whenever we go back to seed, we see in the book of Genesis that God speaks about the seed. It says the woman's seed and Satan's seed will have enmity with each other. They will clash, they will fight, and they will be contrary to each other. So there's two seeds, right? Okay. The woman's seed but the woman's seed has to be Yahushua, because the promises will be made to Yahushua. So can you obtain any of the promises outside of Yahushua? 
think of it. Is there any one promise that you can obtain outside of Messiah? So can a person outside of Messiah pray to God? Well, you can, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say that the prayer is going to be effective if you're going to be meeting Yeshua and not meeting Yeshua. You actually won't be heard. I mean, only one valid prayer. Nothing happens. So even if you believe that He exists, you have no access to God outside of Yahushua. It's a matter of fact, you have no access of God outside of the Holy Spirit. No. The only valid prayer is the <coughs> salvation type prayer, God save me. That's the only thing you'll hear. So anything that has to do with seeking God for salvation. So the Holy Spirit has to, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit on a person could lead to a, a call, so it, which is calls out in His name. Yeah. That's all. That's all that is heard. Think about it. Exactly. Think about it this way. What if someone is non-seed, not the seed of Messiah? What if they try and pray to God? The question is, is there any chance that he will answer someone's prayer on the odd occasion? No. So basically we get to the answer that anybody that's not in Messiah, including especially those that are not seed, God has nothing to do with them. Can't be. Can't be your choice. That's why we have to have sometimes these interactions because we find those things. But but remember, Gary is just repeating what we've been taught. This is what we have heard before. That's why in the study of Romans we've got a we have to see exactly what it's saying. Exactly. Because this is what happened. This is what has happened to me for years is I read, but I try and fit what I've been taught into what I'm reading. So, it does, okay, so there's a scripture that does speak about him desiring all men to be saved. But now you've got to take that scripture, okay, remember this is the process. Everybody take note of the process. When it comes to scripture, we have a scale in our minds. So you can't have two opposing truths. The moment you have two opposing truths, you have no truth. Yet we've managed in our minds to maintain opposing truths without realizing what will the opposing truths do? Cancels out truth. Okay, so if I believe that God saves us according to His sovereign will, and I believe that He desires to have all men saved, then I have two opposing truths, so I have no truth. 
in the end of the day. The two cancels each other out. Does it make sense? See, that's a good question. That is the question. Does, does, does God respond according to his desires? Yeah, it's important. It's important that we uh, repeat that again so they couldn't hear. Then the other seed looks like us. And the tares and the wheat, with the seed of the tares and the wheat, that's why the story of the tares and the wheat is in the Bible. Because the tares seed and the wheat seed look the same. Even the plants, when they grow up, they look exactly the same. Up until a certain point. Until the seed ripens, then the interesting thing about there's a reason why he used tears and seed, uh, tears and wheat, because I believe <laughs> I believe he created tears and wheat similar to be able to tell the story one day. Probably. He probably just created it for that reason. So tears and wheat cannot be distinguished until it ripens, and then the wheat will bow, will will the, will become heavy and will hang like this, but the tears will remain upright. So the wheat will bow down, and the tears will remain upright, and that's how you know the difference. Apparently, there's no way of knowing the difference otherwise. But if you eat the tears, it's poisonous. <laughs> and so this is the story that we're looking at. So God desires to save all men. If God desired to save all men, we have a problem. If that was the, if we had to take that scripture. And it is a question that we need to deal with because if we look at that scripture and we make and we and we establish our doctrine, our way of thinking about salvation accordingly, if we take that scripture, ignore the whole book of Romans, because you have to then so so this is what we do on the scale. We put that scripture that does say that on the scale. Then we put all the other scriptures on the scale, and then in the end of the day. If there's 50 scriptures on this side and only one or two on that side, then we can't keep this as an ultimate truth. It has to fit in somewhere with the rest of the truth. Does it make sense? Do you know where that scripture is? Yes. Can you read it to us, please? First Timothy chapter 2, verse <coughs> I'll read from verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, our God, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
We've got to consider just what it says here. Okay, let's read it. He's speaking about conduct, um, how the believers should live in a certain way. Okay, so he's saying live in a certain way that you 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 don't become an offense to others, so that you have a good testimony, so that the door you become an open door for the gospel for others. Then he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Yahushua Mashiach, who gave himself a ransom for all to be, to be testified in due time. So does it say he gave himself a ransom for all? Gave himself a ransom for all. This is what we have studied. So he doesn't just cancel out the sins or pays the price for the sins of certain people. He pays the price for all sin in the sight of God. Okay, so he pays price for sin. Now that's why we are going to have a look. We have to understand what the Bible says about the working of sin. Okay, so what if he cancelled out all sin? Then we're back to square one. If he paid the price for all sin, then logic says everybody has to be saved. But we are not saved because of the absence of sin. People think, well, if you get rid of sin, then Bob's your uncle. No, God's your father. It was random. So people think if you get rid of sin, then there's no more problem. But the, the, what we're looking at in the book of Romans, we kind of suspected that we needed to shine a brighter light on this. It's not, the whole book of Romans, with all its complicated explanations of sin, is trying to tell us that although sin is important because death comes by sin, and although sin is important because God is separate from sin, it's not, sin is not the issue of salvation. Because if sin was the issue of salvation, then no one would get saved. So although he pays the price for all sin, It doesn't mean that anybody is better in aligned now for salvation because of it. So, on the one hand, the Bible says that all have died in their sin. On the other hand, it says that he died and paid the price for all sin. It says he became a ransom for all. Now what? But that's why we're going to do this study. Let's just dive into the study of Romans. There's literally no other part of the Bible that explains this better than the book of Romans. 
So we were looking, we were having a chat about the Catholic mindset this week. And she said, oh, this Hail Mary thing, why and how? What? So why do you have to say 20 Hail Marys or 50 Hail Marys? Because the more you say, the better the chances that Mary will hear you and go, okay, I'll, I'll hear your prayer. And the idea is, because I've sinned, the, the thinking is, because the, pers the person is going to say the Hail Marys because they did something wrong. So you say a bunch of Hail Marys to get her attention. It's like, hello, 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 look at me. And so there's thousands of them on earth trying to get her attention. And then the idea is that because I have made a mistake or, or sinned, I cannot go to Yahushua because he's too holy. So I've now got to get one of the saints, or Mary, preferably because she's got the most influence because she's his mother. I've got to get her to go and do a good word for me. And then there's a bunch of other saints that they can also pray for. And you get there, you, if you can convince them to put in a good word for you, then he's going to forget or forgive what you have done. And then no bad things will happen to you. Who does that? Uh, Greek mythology. It is, it is exactly Greek mythology. It's, it's not even, it's a blatantly <laughs> it just Greek mythology. Slightly changed the names. <laughs> Uh, now, let's have a look at what it says. Do you want to pick us up at Thursday evening? I think we start Yes, there. we start there. Right. Okay. Uh, okay, we try, we're going to try and just... You're going to have to concentrate. This is an academic we're exercise. Following a process, okay. you have to stay with the steps. So, so. Okay. Chapter 4 in Romans. Chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 8. We read this last Sunday, and then we're going to connect Thursday. <clears throat> but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed, oh, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Okay, so we looked at the blessedness aspect last Sunday. And then on Thursday evening, we looked at cursed, accursed, defined some things around that. And then we came to the conclusion that accursed is equivalent, the equivalent to being unclean, ritually unclean. And this can only happen by the law. So in the nation of Israel, if someone became ritually unclean, for, we use the example of, for instance, leprosy. If someone was unclean and they had leprosy, then the rest of the nation of Israel would not come close to them, wouldn't touch them, you have nothing to do with them because this uncleanness, this defilement could defile the rest of the nation of Israel. So there's a, a defilement and ritual uncleanness, but that sets apart that separates because it could defile the rest okay <clears throat> and uh, and it says here okay wait I'll read that now so then we understand but that can only happen by the law but then we saw we went back to Genesis and we saw that curse already comes in to play in the first 
the third chapter of Genesis. So in the very beginning, we already see curse come into play. And then we see there's a cursedness on Cain that then follows through. And in between this curse coming down and the law being given, we have Abraham, who is the father of faith, the standard of faith, the representative of faith. And he's about 70 years old when God calls him. Now, at the age of 70, when God comes and calls him and then imputes righteousness to him through faith, we know, we can safely assume, I would say, that Abraham was indeed, at the age of 70, a sinner. At the very least, we know that his father was an idol maker, so chances are he was probably a big fat idol worshipper, which is the sin of sins. And yet, God approaches him and can impute righteousness to him. But now we have another interesting aspect because we see that the law is only 430 years after Abraham. So according to what is his sin then defined? So we're going to look at all of that. But then we see in chapter 7 verse 12 uh, where Paul is explaining the law. We're going to get back to all of this but I just want to point out this one. It says, therefore the law is holy. And the commandment, holy and just and good. So the law is holy. In other words, when once the law was given, any person that would approach the law would come into contact with holiness, which would shine a light and define their unholiness, their defilement, if you will, and so there would be a separation. Just like we looked at accursed, which means defiled, and then there's a separation. So a person would approach the a holy law, which would define, give form to, and shape to their unholiness, and there would be a separation. Okay. But the law, if the law is holy, and holiness is separated unto God separated unto God. So the law being holy would be separated unto God and the law itself becomes then a smallish, well not smallish, but a representative of God's holiness. But it is not all of God's holiness. Okay. But within the law, we get a idea of God's holiness. So if a person would approach the law, it would shine a light on their unholiness and then sin is defined. How much the more, how much the more would this be true if the God of all holiness approaches a sinful man? How much the more would this shine a light on unrighteousness and ungodliness? And yet we see that this is what God does with Abraham. So he approaches Abraham, Abraham who has had no knowledge of God, almost definitely a sinner, and yet God is able to impute righteousness to Abraham <coughs> apart in another form or way. Because if it was up to Abraham's holiness and God's holiness having a showdown, so God imputes righteousness to Abraham in a different way. We see there's something else, something separate, not separate, but something else that God is going to use to impute righteousness. So the law is very clearly stated by Paul to be holy. Okay? It's 
very important for our process of understanding God's ways. So the Israelite would have, in the time of the law, when they speak about his coat or his cloak or his, that would have been, the, they would have, they would wear uh, a robe with the tassels, and this would represent the law. So they put themselves literally into, covered by the law. So it was a physical manifestation of, because I surround myself with the law, basically it would mean that wherever you walk, you, have, you are basically, everybody but it sees you, everybody that sees you is going to expect you to act according to the law because you're wearing the robe. So they're surrounding themselves, immersing themselves in that, in, in holiness. So they're walking around, and this is a reminder, a representative, and a testimony of being separated unto God. So the robe separates them from the rest of the world. Literally. So they're wearing their clothes as a separation from the world around them. Okay. But the consequence is that they are now also responsible because literally they have a witness, their own clothes become a witness against them all the time. So it can be a witness for the holiness and the righteousness of God's ways or a witness against them. Worse is if they, not worse for them, but they also wouldn't pray unless they put the pressure over their heads because they could only pray according to the law. Think about what I'm saying. You are going to approach God in prayer, whether worship, um, supplications, requests, intercession, but you are only going to approach God covered by the law, because the law is holy. So as we become holy in Messiah and can approach, we have access to the Father through the Spirit and by the Holy Spirit, that's our access, and that is the Holy Spirit. They had access to the Father by the Holy Law. So they would pray covered by the Law. Basically, they were saying, I'm keeping the Law so I can safely interact with God when I pray. Right. There's much for us to learn about uh, how to pray and how to walk from that picture. He gave us a foreshadowing of being covered, being immersed in the Holy Spirit. So we're still walking in the Holy Spirit, being surrounded by the Holy Spirit, clothed in, clothed in righteousness. We still only have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Although we're in Messiah, the Bible says we have access by the Spirit. So instead of Instead of being covered by the law when we pray, we're now covered by grace, the inworking of the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't pray unless the Holy Spirit impresses the will and the ways of God on our minds. If you pray your own prayer, unrighteous, unlawful, and dangerous. Okay? So this gives us some idea. So the holy law, you can continue from there. I know, that's what I wanted to do. Okay. <laughs> so if the law is holy, I want us to get this. This is a picture that will open up the rest of the book of Romans for us. 
So Abraham is a sinner. Yet God is going to come to him. And now God is going to, in some way, God has to give him righteousness because if he doesn't give him righteousness, they cannot have a relationship. Right? So now God wants a relationship with Abraham, but if he doesn't give him righteousness, they, they cannot have a relationship because Abraham is a sinner. So if the holiness of God has to approach Abraham, although the law was not yet given, no law, just because God is separated in holiness, it would mean that Abraham being a sinner would have to be judged. Does that make sense? Okay. This is going to become very important as we go through how this works. So we are going to look at faith again. Because Abraham becomes the figure of faith. Then there's the steps of faith. That's the steps of Abraham's faith. That we need to keep in mind in our walk. Okay. So if God desires to save all men, why doesn't he just impute righteousness as a blanket imputement? Impution. <laughs> why does he decide, why, why does he approach Abraham and creates a way to give righteousness to Abraham? See, this, is, this boils down to that whole thing. If he, if he desired to save all men, why only approach one? So I know we've, we've done this, there's obvious answers, but we have, to, we have to understand how this works, why it works the way that it works. Okay? Now, take us through faith again, please. Chapter 4. Chapter four. Okay. <coughs> I'll read from this side. Okay. So we're going to read this piece again, but we're going to include verse 9. Mm. Okay, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So, Abraham is fully qualified for this. He's ungodly. He's not working for righteousness. Because, I mean, he's not dealing with the right God. And is there any righteousness separate from God? So, although he might be busy with religious actions or even good works, it's not in connection with the one true God, so, so he's, he's fully qualified, ungodly man. Go. Our father, Abraham. So the first thing that qualifies Abraham is his ungodliness. Sinfulness. Can you qualify for salvation unless you're ungodly? You don't need to be saved if... You don't need to be saved. 
So that would have, as a natural consequence, listen carefully to what I'm saying. Can you qualify for salvation unless you're un ungodly? So this means the most ungodly person is the most qualified for salvation. So the goody two-shoes is less qualified. In their minds. Interesting, because even the, 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 the desperate need for God is not enough to drive us to yeah, salvation. I have ministered to so many street people, so many beggars. Their need is the greatest, but it's still not enough to bring them to repentance. So they acknowledge that they have a need, <laughs> but it's not enough to bring them to repentance. So although, practically, the more ungodly the person is, the more qualified he is for salvation, this need for salvation is still not going to be what, what causes salvation. Listen carefully. I've seen people try and come to God because of their need, and they look like they're coming to salvation until the need is fulfilled. Mm. Have you been in church long enough when they... When they Unemployed, that's when they seek God. When they're financially in trouble, that's when they seek God. Until they get a job, then you never see them again. Okay? So, yeah, I learned that lesson in church. People come say, pray for me to get a job. We pray they get a job. So now I think the new rule, people come say, pray for me for a job. I say, no, stay unemployed and maybe you'll <laughs> stay saved. Okay, continue with that. Okay, I'm just going to pick up. We're not going to read verse 5 to 8 again. We'll pick up at verse 9. <clears throat> now we're going to start to highlight key aspects of what we're looking at. Okay. This is now where we're going to go a little bit academic. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah, fine. Okay, it's okay. Right, you read for us. Okay, so just to reiterate, because it starts in verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now I just want to reiterate, we did this last Sunday, so I'm not going to spend too much time explaining this again. <clears throat> but we see, we said that blessedness from verse 5 to verse 9 is, or blessing, or blessed, or blessedness is uh, quite strongly emphasized in these few verses and we said well why blessedness what what is the truth behind this blessedness what are we looking at why blessedness why not righteousness and then we said well because it ends with blessed is the man to whom the lord shall not shall not impute sin shall not impute sin so god is going to look at a person and consider them sinless sinless now we said that obviously we know there are wages for sin the ultimate being death but we also know that according to the law of god there are blessings and curses now we're not going to go into the details of that but if a person has no sin then can any of the curses ever be imputed to a person to that person no. if you have a sinless person 
then they are living in a constant state of blessedness. So it's an entire absence of any form or shape of curse or cursedness or accursedness. It's a constant blessedness, which God chooses. So by God choosing to not impute sin to a person. Okay, but now we've got to make this clear. Yes. We're talking about a person where God will not impute sin. That means because of what God decided to do, there's a blessedness. Yes. But now you could have a person that was born and raised in a little tribe of 10 people in the middle of the Amazon forest. There's no law. So the absence of sin does not mean they are blessed. Keep that in mind. Okay. So blessedness. For the sake of this study today, let's not focus, let's, when we read circumcised, uncircumcised, I think we paid enough attention to that mm. in previous time. Now we're going to ignore those parts of the, of the um, narr narrative. So, we are already 2,000 years on. We've now accepted that the Gentiles can get saved. It's no longer an issue, right? Okay. So, we're going to look over it. In not order throwing just it out, but not focusing on it. On order to just, so that we can just mine the most important parts out of the sentences and, and not have the focus on uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, Gentiles, Jews. That's a non-issue in our day. So we're looking at what information we can mine. From this moment on, let's think of saved. So replace the word saved or salvation with blessedness. This blessedness. Okay. Continue. Okay. Does this blessedness, verse 9, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? <laughs> For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he received the sign of circumcision as a seal and a sign of the righteousness that was um, imputed. But what he's saying is God imputed righteousness to him when he was still uncircumcised. So no sign, no seal, no outward confirmation yet. Okay, you get the picture. So later on he would receive the circumcision as a testimony, a sign and a seal of the righteousness that God imputed to him. But the righteousness was imputed first. So now we have an ungodly sinner that has not received the seal or the confirmation of the covenant yet. But God has given him righteousness. Okay. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Clear enough. 
Okay. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay. Very important statement made by Paul. He says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Huge statement. Because the law brings about wrath. Now, just concerned on the first part of what he's saying. He says, anyone that is of the law cannot be saved. None of the promises are theirs. The promises are made void. Of no effect. So someone that's of the law, listen carefully. We are going to look at the righteousness of the law, but he's basically saying, listen to what he's saying. I'm going to read it again. Um, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Okay. What, why does being an heir matter? Being someone that is receiving the inheritance. Why does this matter? He's saying that if someone that is of the law are partakers in the inheritance, then it cancels faith out. So, what is he doing? He's basically making, putting a very definite um, conditions in place. So, this is the, these are the terms and conditions. This is how it works. Why is it important? It's important to us, not because we are dealing with the law anymore. It's important because of the attitudes of the heart, the mindset, the way we think. Okay, so that is why we are teaching everybody to have a 100% clear bill when it comes to the law. 100% no law. 100% no law. Because it cancels out faith. Can you have faith and a little bit of the law at the same time? Even if you have faith, strong faith at times. Do you see how it works? Add one law and you have cancelled out all faith. Okay, continue. Uh, verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So now he has just changed his tone. He's no longer speaking about circumcised, uncircumcised Gentiles and Jews. He's now saying 
those who are of faith. So he has just created a whole new group. Those who are of faith. Do you see what he's doing? He has just gathered all different Jews and Gentiles into a grouping. Those who are of faith. I know we know this, but we need to academically understand it for everything to make sense. Yes, carry on. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Yahushua our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Right, now... Okay, one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yahushua HaMashiach, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Chapter 5 verse 1. Pay attention, he just summed up the entire gospel. Again. So we're always looking, we're looking for these verses where the gospel is summed up. Okay? Right, listen carefully. For when we were, okay, therefore having been justified by faith, so we now know that justification by faith for Abraham was a process that God followed. He had to respond in some way to something so that God could give him righteousness. We have peace with God through our Lord Yahushua HaMashiach. Now, is there any way that Abraham could have responded in faith and came into peace with God? So the holy God comes to a sinful man. Now God has to create circumstances and environment in which the sinful man can have relationship with God so that God doesn't have to destroy him. It says that we now we have peace with God through Yahushua HaMashiach. Is there any way that it could work differently for Abraham? Okay. <clears throat> Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay. So, through faith, we have access into grace. Very important statement. Okay. Keep that connection. Keep it in mind. Okay. So, through faith, the faith of Abraham... We have access into grace in which we stand. Okay. And then he adds the glory. We know the glory is very important for the gospel. Okay. Now go to Galatians. Okay. Galatians chapter 3. 
Okay. <clears throat> oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Yahushua HaMashiach was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Okay, I'm going to interject every now and then. So, I want to create a, a thought pattern here, a unit here. So, what is he saying to them? Obviously, we see there's this, is the works going to perfect you? You started out in faith and by the Spirit. But he's actually, the anchor of this and how, where we start to understand what he's saying is in the first verse, where he says, Before whose eyes Yahushua Mashiach was clearly portrayed among you, as crucified. Now, this isn't only or just the fact that, well, you know that he died on the cross and you are saved through his death and resurrection. It's not just that, because we see from what he's going to explain to them that he is actually, he would have been pointing out something specific. He says to them, Do you not remember? Before your eyes, clearly it was portrayed that our Lord was crucified. But we know that when he was crucified and within the crucifixion, he died ritually unclean. Remember, he went into the praetorium over the time of Passover, becoming unclean, then had to die outside of the city in a Gentile manner over this holy feast time. He died ritually unclean, according to the law. And yet... God resurrected him. So on the third day, he was resurrected. Which means that he's pointing out to them, he was resurrected then, obviously not according to his righteousness in the law, it must have been according to something else. So he was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And yet now, this only I want to learn from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he was... Okay, we get this picture. I don't want to go too much into that because we're going to do righteousness next. Okay, so remember that he said Abraham received the circumcision as the sign and the seal of the righteousness that he had through faith before circumcision. Remember, right. Now he's saying to them, have you received the spirit through the works of the law or by faith? He's referring is the, the same sort pattern. He's, he's referring to the seal and the sign of the faith. Which okay. is the Holy Spirit. So that's why he's asking the question. He's saying that you receive... It seems random that he's asking the question. He says, did you receive the Spirit? He's saying that you received the seal because they would have understood it's the same as the circumcision that Abraham received as a result of the faith that caused God to impute righteousness. Now he's saying that you receive the Holy Spirit because it's the sign and the seal. Yeah, we see that in Corinthians and Ephesians. Okay. That this Holy Spirit is the so same. it's very important. He's basically he's going to make an, uh, uh, an argument against any form of law, against returning in any way to circumcision. Circumcision meant that they would join in a culture in a group the Jews are saying well if you're going to try and serve the same God as we've been serving for all these years then you have to join with us 
you have to become part of us. Okay? <clears throat> so he's basically saying to them, if you go back to any form of it, circumcision or any form of the law, any form of the law, then you, have, you are denying the fact that Messiah himself, Yahushua himself, was clearly betrayed, portrayed uh, as crucified. So basically he's going to make this argument and he's going to, this statement is where he finalizes that their argument cannot be valid. Because you bring it back to, you can bring it back to the holiness, of the maybe, maybe he was the son of God, maybe he was Messiah. But the big clincher is the fact that he dies unclean. Remember that, okay. So he dies unclean. So although his whole life he kept the law, he was born under the law, kept the law. <clears throat> is his entire life of keeping the law cancelled out at the end? <clears throat> Does it make sense? Okay. So a big part of our Christian belief is based on the fact that he lived a sinless life. Therefore he was accepted by God. Can we see the fallacy in it? <clears throat> Think about what I'm saying. So according to the law, all they had, all they had right then, he was born a Jew under the law. If you went into the house of, a, of an unbeliever over the feast days or other times as well, you became unclean. So just in his interaction with, <clears throat> with the Roman people in his house, he became unclean. So in Pilate's house, the moment he stepped foot, remember it says that the rest of the Jews didn't go in because it was the feast and they didn't want to become unclean. But he went in. He went in. Secondly, he cannot continue. Remember, it's continuing in the law. So although he has the meal, he cannot continue keeping the Passover the way that it was supposed to. Obviously, he's under arrest. <laughs> and then he's going to Difficult. unfortunately die while he's supposed to keep the feast. Unfortunately. So, the whole sequence of events, if it happened on another weekend, <laughs> it wouldn't have been an issue. But it has to happen on that specific time because he has to become utterly unclean. Never heard this. It is true that he lived a sinless life, but it's not because of that. And it's not even that he sinned and going like, watch me walk into this Gentile house. So, and yet, it made him unclean. Okay, this is very important because remember, all Bible school is going to teach you this, that he could pay for our sins because he was sinless. And it's true. But according to the law, he was not sinless, he was unclean. That's very important. It's very important because that's the way we've all been taught. <clears throat> so he was, un, he was without sin, but God accepted his sacrifice and now he's going to wash my sin with his blood and that's all we were taught. That's all that, so he's just going to wash my sin away 
And that's why, I, but then that's why people struggle to live in the consciousness of not having sin imputed to them. Christians don't, don't manage that. We're always going back trying to again make right with God because we, we've, been, we've been given by religion this consciousness of, well, I'm, I'm full of sin. He was without sin, so that's unfair. <clears throat> no, when he went onto the cross, Although he had never sinned willingly, he went on to the cross as a sinner, according to the law. You see, they judge, remember that they could only judge him <clears throat> guilty because he used the name of Yahweh that were not to be spoken. Remember, they didn't crucify him because he went into the Praetorium. They wanted to kill him, so they sent him to the Praetorium to crucify him. So. Yeah. So you've got to understand that even according, according to their law, According to their law, he transgressed the moment that he proclaimed the name that God had given his people. That was the, the, one of the big steps. Claiming that he's the son of God, the Messiah, that got them angry. But the fact that he used his name when proclaiming that, that's the big transgression. That's the only way that they could actually officially um, pass a judgment on him. Now he's done that. So as far as they're concerned, the moment that he proclaimed the, the name of God out loud, he already became... Just when, when he read the scripture, he had to use the name of God. So now, he's already, as far as they're concerned, already unlawful. So according to the law, it's very important to understand, according to the law, he's no longer righteous, no longer justified. So... If he is richly unclean, if he has literally transgressed the law, and it's law given by God. We're not talking about the laws of the Jews. It's God's law. Um, they've taken his robe off. Right? He's no longer covered by the law. Taken away from him. Okay, so right now, as far as righteousness, holiness is concerned, on earth as a man, he's been stripped of Righteousness and justice, justification. He's no longer wholly considered by the people. His robe is taken off. Okay. Now, if this is true, if this is true, then how, according to what, is he justified by God? Now, we might say, well, it says faith, but how does it work? What is it that causes God to find or to judge his sacrifice acceptable? Just because he laid down his life, many people have laid down their lives for others. There's all kinds of heroes that died trying to save others because of love. That's what it's going to boil down to in the end of the day. That's what we are opening up. That's what we're opening up. Okay, we continue there. Okay. <clears throat> uh, 
Should we do it chronologically or can I skip? Mm. Okay. No, you can skip if you want. Okay, let's read just for thoroughness. Let's read verse 1 and 5. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Oh, still Galatians. Um, okay, now I think I'm going to skip over verse 6 to 9 first. Let's go straight to verse 10. Because the thought pattern kind of continues here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. So although Yahushua loved keeping the law, even himself, even the Son of God, as the Son of Man, is not justified in the sight of God because of keeping the law. Very important to understand that. Because what they're actually implying by teaching us that he was sinless, and that's why God, they're implying that he was accepted in the sight of God because he kept the law. That's what they imply through their doctrine. And then somehow we obtain righteousness differently. That's right. So that it's, it's a little seed of a mindset that's very subtly planted into our, um, our, our, our idea of how it works. So on the one hand, we accept it's that dualism where, uh, that Charlene brought up. We might believe that uh, God through His perfect will saves us, and yet at the same time we can agree that God wants to save all, all men. And we never realize that we have two directly opposing truths, and the one will cancel the other out. The same way they've planted the seed that on the one hand they teach us the law is cancelled, you're no longer under the law, and yet they tell us that God accepted him because he kept the law. So where does that leave us? Something's cancelling something else out all the time. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read verse 11 again. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident... For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now this is a huge statement. And it's, Paul writes it numerous times throughout the, the New Testament. We see it in Romans as well. That says that no one is justified by the law. So just sit on that. There is no justification by the law. It says, for the just shall live by faith. So justification can only come by faith, which means that there is a form of righteousness that can be attained through keeping the law, continuing in the law. But this is not the same as justification. Justification cannot come through the works of the law. Justification can only come by faith. Okay, now we could end it there and just say, now we understand it's only by faith. But that wouldn't give us the deep understanding of the mechanism that's at work. Because there's something at work that we need to understand. 
Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Okay. Now, Messiah, how many times have you read this before? Messiah has redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse of the law. If he died having kept the law, then we wouldn't be redeemed from the curse of the law at all. So the moment that he became unclean, he was supposed to be accursed. And it says he became a curse for us. Did the curse kill him? There was something else that was stronger, more powerful more acceptable in the sight of God than even the curse that comes by the breaking of the law. Abraham was an ungodly, sinful man. So now we are going to, obviously we moving to the place where we're understanding it's by faith, but there's another factor, the righteousness. And that's what we're moving towards that. We wanted to do it this Sunday, but we felt we haven't actually laid the groundwork for looking at the righteousness of God. Because now righteousness is imputed, but the only way to understand what that is, How that works we can accept it without it. understanding. Mm. But if we understand, we can respond to it better. Mm. Okay, so here's the question. Keep this in mind as we continue. If you have... A man born in a forest, no mother, no father, no genealogy, has never sinned. He's just there all alone. No law, no one to tell him what's right or wrong, so he cannot sin. Does it mean God has to accept him? You can't just say no. Why? Based on what? This is a very important, it's a big question. I'll be automatically acceptable to God in the absence of sin. True. Is there anything we can do? See, we've got, we've got to keep that question in mind. So you're saying, well, there's no way of knowing you're sure. You don't need a Savior if you haven't sinned. Exactly. That's going to inevitably happen. But just let's just isolate it from all the other stuff. Just say this man there is now six years old and there has been no law um, presented to him. If there's no sin, then does God have to accept him? Remember, no sin. He doesn't have to know Yahushua because you only need a Savior when you have sinned. Okay, keep that question in mind. Because see, what we, we, we've, we've got to get loose from the, the, there's one layer of understanding things, then there's a better layer, then there's a better layer. And for us in the beginning it was simple, I'm a sinner and he forgives my sin and that's why I'm accepted. So if, he, we think I'm saved because he forgave my sin and when the sin is out of the way now automatically he has to accept me. That's what we thought. Think about it, it's what we thought, it's what we've been taught. 
So if we can only exclude sin, and obviously the blood is going to take care of the sin, then voila, I'm right with God. Heavenly being. Not true. It doesn't work like that. It's not what the Bible says. Okay, let's continue. Okay, now verse 13 and 14, I'm wondering if we should unpack it in a deeper way next Sunday yes, along yes, with the with next teaching. Okay, yeah. so we are going to do it. It's just not today we're going to do it. Okay, so I'm going to read verse 13 and 14 again. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham, now remember we defined the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Messiah Yahushua, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, so again, just a quickly reference to Abraham received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness which he had. This is the same, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now here we see a very strong overlapping with what we just read in Romans chapter 4. Remember? To Abraham and his seed, promise. Okay. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto your seed who is Messiah. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. Where did we see? We saw in Romans chapter 4, that the law can make the promises of no effect. Can make faith void and... Okay. Um, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he's saying, God promised to Abraham and to his seed the promises. I'm not going to go into that. The promises. Then came the law. But he's saying that the law didn't change or annul or uh, add to the promise that was already made to Abraham and to the seed. Because if it did, then now the promise that God made is now no longer in effect because now it's up to the law. Okay, we saw the same thought pattern in Romans. Now he goes and he says, what purpose then does the law serve? Which is a valid question. So if the law isn't going to change the promises of God and the promise is still to Abraham and his seed and the law isn't going to change that, then why, why give the law? What's the purpose of it? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come, the seed, with a capital S, should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Now, this is also important, because we just read here that if the inheritance is of the law, then it makes the promises of God of no effect. So does that mean that the law is against the promises of God? We'll go see the same thing in Romans chapter 7, where it says, is the law sin then? So, you know, um, certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
Now this is very important. I'm going to read it again. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. This is important. It means that even if the law was kept and there was righteousness by the law, this is not the same as eternal life righteousness. So keeping the law, continuing in the law, does not guarantee eternal life. The first law given is given to Adam in the garden. Is it given while he is righteous or unrighteous? While righteous. Does the law, is the first law that's given, is it going to bring life? No. He there does. was life. He had eternal life. He had eternal life on earth. Then the, law the law was given not to give life. Was it to protect life? Was it in any way? He had to just eat from the tree of life. So if there was a law given that could give eternal life or give life, no. From the moment that law becomes a thing, it's not giving life. God gave life. Law will do the opposite. Did law do the opposite? If God had not given a law, then I don't know how it would work. Adam would be, still be around. <laughs> it would be cool, actually. But everybody would be around. And only the seed would be around. Oh, that's heaven. No. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, not so hard to imagine. Earth was heaven. Everybody, everybody would have just all been around. We would have just been born and then continued with everybody else. Wow. It's exactly what we're looking forward to. Okay, so do we understand that law is the thing that interrupted that? Well, the breaking of that law. But the moment it was given, the possibility for something else. So, okay. Right. Keep that in mind. We'll get back to it. Yeah. Okay. This also brings us back to where we started. For if there was a law given that could have given life, then righteousness surely would have been by the law. And we said that Yeshua dies unclean and yet the Father resurrects him. So it must be based on something other than the righteousness of the law. Okay. Um, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Yahushua HaMashiach might be given to those who believe. Okay, now, this is the obvious answer. Obviously, faith is the other thing. But again, we need to, what is that? What is it? Okay. But before faith came, we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Messiah, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay, now, we have explained the whole law dynamic in various ways um, but we started out saying asking the question that Paul asks or he says that the law we conclude that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and good okay so the law wasn't just given to 
impute sin or show sin. The law itself is holy. And we started out saying that the holiness of the law would be a reflection of some of God's holiness. Okay, so it's not all bad. Um, we'll explain more on that later. This is so tricky because we can't just explain everything in one go. We're just going to now, here is where we link back to the book of Romans. It says, verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Okay. So the moment any person born an atheist to an atheist family, the moment that person decides to look into the Word of God, the law is activated. This is how it works. A person comes across one verse of the Bible, one verse, and you become accountable to God for the entire word. So if you have a person separated from law, no law given, no law given, they still sin, but sin is undefined for them. Right? Until something happens, and usually the Holy Spirit draws them to the Word of God, the Scriptures, and the Scripture confine all under sin. Okay. So what the parents do is they go to church and then they, want, they take their kids to Sunday school so that they can confine them all under sin. That's the purpose of it. Did you hear that, Elijah? That's what people do. So, parents, please take your kids to Sunday school so that they can become guilty and confined under sin, die in their sins, and go to hell. Job well done. Thank you. <laughs> you taught Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so this is how the process, process works. But now the question is, would it have been better for people then not to come to the knowledge of God because then they would be innocent? This is actually one now of we're the back big to, questions. In the absence of sin, does God have to <coughs> save that person? So, seed. And you're right, that's what you said. If you are seed, we are drawn to the law like moths to a candle. No. To no. those things, those insect yeah. things. That's what happens. Okay? The seed especially will be drawn to their death. Hurdled. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. Why are you here? You know it's bad for you. <laughs> Drawn like a moth mm. to its doom. God's way. God's grace first has, it has to bring you to, we just read that we were kept under God. as a tutor under God by the law. You, if you are seed, then you are brought to the law. You will want to, remember the seed will want to in some form or way 
because it's part of their DNA, their construct, they will want to keep some form of the ways of God. And the closest or the easiest access that we have to something like that is a form of the law, any form of the law. So we'll want to um, define right and wrong, and so that automatically law. And there's a process now, because the seed will somewhere in themselves, no, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, most people that believe in heaven and hell don't want to go to hell. Believe it or not. There's a few that intentionally yeah, decide but. that's where they want to go. I don't know how that works, but anyways, the other seed love their father as well. And then... Daddy! The, the seed of God, the seed of God has to be drawn to the law because, see, just, the, just the, the, the fear of going to hell or the desire not to go to hell, that's not enough for salvation. Because, see, uh, Elijah, this is how it works. The only thing that God would accept is if we choose His will to be done above our own. So this is salvation. This is what it boils down to. We, we choose to lay our wills down. And you, I think you can testify that that's the big battle. I want to do my own thing. And now the only way that God will actually Save me. impute righteousness to me is if I choose not to do what I wanted to do and I choose what He wants. But we have to, be conv we have to get convinced of that. Now, so there's a process where we are brought to the law. The more we are drawn to look into God's ways, the more we become aware of the fact that I'm toast. Uh, it's like you start smelling the smoke mm. on you. Uh, the flesh burning already. That's what you, you... But that's not even enough. Not even the fear of condemnation is enough to save us. This whole thing will bring you to a process where you actually become convinced that he's good. That's what makes the difference. That's what Abraham did right. He didn't... Okay, we've got to, before we look into what sin is, we've got to take note. Does God come to Abraham with thunder and lightning and smoke and go, Abraham, you toast! Abraham, you sinner! Look at me, I'm holy and you are unholy. <laughs> Abraham's 70 years old. By now he's got a record, criminal record, alright, he's a definitely, he is in, probably in the family business. Mm. Where did his money come from? His riches. He's probably an idol worshipper that sells idols. Okay, God doesn't come to him and, and, and threaten him with judgment. That's the significance of God's ways. Let's go to uh, 3 verse 9. Romans. Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Okay, we have read the, the rest of it, so just pick it up here. Are we better than they? We're not going to concentrate on that, not at all. This is where we want to start. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now remember, we just saw the same thing. The law confined all under sin in Galatians. Galatians. 
Now let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Romans. Verse 12. Verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. What did we just read? <laughs> you see, most of our brains will do the same thing. Okay, think about it. Most of us, when we read through Romans, we went like, well, this Gentile Jew stuff and the law stuff, that's got nothing to do with me. Mm. It's 2019. Grace. I'm looking for something that's pertaining to me that's applicable. So we kind of read through it because we have to finish reading this at some stage. So we kind of read it, but we don't register because mm. we're going to read over it. Okay, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Now that doesn't seem like it's got anything to do with me. No application whatsoever, so I can just ignore it and carry on to the bit that says um, something about blessing. <laughs> but this is very important in us understanding the ways of salvation, because most people don't even, even saved people don't know what salvation is most of the times. Okay, now, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Now, we just read that the law confines everyone under sin. Mm. We also saw it says, chapter 3, verse 9, second sentence, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. And there he gives us the key to the whole mystery. No, there is none righteous. Now, let's get back to chapter 2, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. So here he's saying that even if a person was born in the middle of a forest, lived there his whole life, never received any form of the law, that he will perish. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Okay, did you hear? That although we understand that because we have a form of the law, we come to the law, then sin is defined. This is that even if someone sinned without law, nothing to define their sin, they will perish without law. Perish being the focus. So no matter how you look at this thing, it boils down to the fact that this issue of salvation is not about sin or breaking the law or keeping the law in any form that we have in, in our, our modern lifestyle. Actually, the issue is not about sin. Shocker, because we all, all, they made it about sin, didn't they? You know why a person that has no law, therefore no sin, 
is still not acceptable to God? Because God will accept those who, with righteousness. He will accept the righteous. He has to impute righteousness. So this is what it boils down to. Even in the absence of sin, the person will also have an absence of righteousness. Because if you don't have law, you cannot have righteousness. Mm. Think about it. So it seems like you could escape judgment or rejection by God if there was no law. But then there's no righteousness because you cannot attain to righteousness if there's nothing defined. Mm -hmm. But still, righteousness doesn't come according to the law. Not the law who works. So when is the law... We looked last week and we said there's a law of faith identified and defined in the scripture. When is the law of faith given? To Adam. So why... why <laughs> Why is the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, why is the Bible saying that Abel had faith? Because the law of faith was already given. Abraham is the father of faith because God will give the promises and he will receive the promises through faith. But it doesn't mean that the law of faith was only activated then. How was it given? Anybody want to try and answer that question? How was it given to Adam? Almost both of them. How was it given to Adam? Yes, JP. When God told him to go forth and multiply. No. Part of it. Part of it. Part of it. No, it's when he picked the only law he gave him was to. Was it not? Was it not given to? Was it not given to the, the son, referring to that, of God? Was it not given to the son when they were forming the plan? So that he saw the finished plan. That would, that would be correct. That would be you you agree? Mm-hmm. That would be? And then that would, would have been passed on to, to Abraham, oh, to, 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 to Adam. Um, <coughs> Can I try and answer? Yes. In Genesis 2, verse 17 and 16, as a law commands you, then how can you surely die if you don't? That's when the law is given, but not yet the law of faith. Can I try? Yeah. Is it when he dresses them in the tunic? No. Not yet. No. Not Not yet. No, I didn't, I mean, no, not that. So why is there a tree of life? Okay, that would have been why. But that's not... Why can there be a tree of life? Obviously we didn't speak about this before, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) 
So if he says, don't eat from that tree, and there's two trees, why doesn't God emphasize in the beginning the fact that he says, eat from the tree of life? So, because he was eating from it. Because it's the only thing he had. He had life. Why is there a tree of life? That's the eternal life. And what's the tree of life then connected to? Where's the life? What does the Bible say about the life? No, no. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. And the Father, he says that the the life that is in the, in the Father, He gave to Him so that He can give eternal life to whomever He called. Well, okay, so my way of thinking was if it were with the sacrifice, then obviously then they would know someone died in their stead so that they can live, but then that would, because you need resurrection for faith, so then you're back to resurrection, but then the tree of life was there before, and you can only have life, eternal, continual life, if there's resurrection. So, eating from the tree of life, being able to eat from the tree of life would be resurrection. And we did a teaching on the tree of life, like last year. Okay, so why is this important? Because what we're we having to do, we have to do this through these studies because we have to understand why it's written the way it is. Mm -hmm. It can become very complicated. So the whole question of sin, transgression, law, grace, justification, righteousness, and faith becomes complicated. But in the beginning, the law of faith is very simple. Do you look confused? Also because resurrection isn't from, like, Adam's not going to live forever just because he's there. He needs to eat from life to live. So even life isn't coming from itself. Life is, eternal life well, is coming from... from the they were eating from the tree of life. That's the but point. But then they died when they fell, when the sin came. Uh, yes, but, but see, that was... They died at 900 and odd years. It's the consequence of not having... Uh, not having um, access to the tree of life. So, so God says you will surely die in that day when you eat of that other tree. Why? Because in eating from that tree, they were separated. Exactly. So that picture... So they ate the, the knowledge of separation, actually. That gave them separation. They ate life. You see, that's the law of faith. That's why the other tree had to be there. That's exactly the same. This is how faith works all through the Bible. Choose to only know, choose to only know godliness. Choose to know what God reveals to you, what God tells you, where the Holy Spirit leads you. That's all we know. To the degree that we exclude the knowledge of good and evil, we will move more purely in life. So we are still in the process of learning not to eat from the tree of good and evil. Just because you started eating from the tree of life doesn't mean you stopped eating from the other tree. So just, just I just want to understand. So when he breathed the breath of life into him, so Adam was outside for, and then he breathed it, and he started. Mm. So he breathed the breath of life into him. 
what you're saying is that although you have that bread of life now, you still have to eat only the peace. Brings us to a very important point. So, we actually wanted to get here. We're going to do this, but we still need to get to the scripture next Sunday. <laughs> so, if we go to chapter 7. So, this is, this is how we get to there. Chapter 7 of Romans. Or do you not know, brethren, or for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? Right. Now we know that he says the only way to become free of the law is to die. We have looked at that many times before. Then verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Messiah, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passion which was aroused by the law was at work in our members to bear fruit to death. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, the flesh, and the law, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Right. Now let's go to um, verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that uh, yes please you read it I lose <laughs> okay verse practice. 18 for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I do not find for the good that I will to do I do not do but the evil I will not to do that I practice now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Yahushua HaMashiach our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, 
but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay. <clears throat> we have to land this because it's really becoming a lot. Mm. Right. So, God breathes into Adam. He's created, he has formed, and he has now got to live according to the breath and the life that is received from God. But there is a process of eating from the tree of life and walking with God. The, we know that death enters because God keeps them away from the tree of life, otherwise they would live forever. So actually, death enters there. Now this is very important for us to understand how this works. Just because, okay, in a quick thing, we can't labor this, we'll do it next week, just to go think about so we are set free from sin in baptism, died in baptism, resurrected in Messiah. That's why in John it says emphatically we've been set free from sin. Hmm. In many other places. Yet, why can we still see the effect of the law on the flesh? Hmm. Why does sin still enter into our... Why and we have, and we have looked at this. So what he's writing here is that the sin, so they taught us the blood washes away the sin. Bye-bye, you have to work. Okay. They taught us the blood just washed away the sin and now we're sinless. When he says the sin is put into the flesh. Deposited. So we can walk in the Spirit and then we are free from sin and death. But if you go into the, into the flesh, have we noticed? Remember separation list. You go that into the flesh, sin, dwells. sin revives, and even the death that it carries with it in the flesh will manifest again. Mm -hmm. Have you wondered how it seems like a contradiction of truth that we are still prone in the flesh to sin and death? So I've been set free from the sin of, from the law of sin and death. But what? For those who walk in the spirit. Okay. So he is created flesh, breathed eternal life, presence of the same as us, Holy Spirit on the inside. Right. But faith is going to operate from the very start. Faith is going to require that he believe he only knows what God told him to do. He only that's all he knows. Or he has. <clears throat> Abraham, sinful man, God approaches him, says, I'm going to show you the eternal plan, eternal life. He believes him, so he imputes righteousness to him. Okay. He now becomes the father of faith. Same as the tree of life. There's the tree of life. Don't worry about the other one. <laughs> Trust me. We're going to dwell forever and then the other things come in. Then he says to him, go and multiply for the earth. So that you will have eternal offspring. The seed can continue. If Adam believed God about the seed then he would never eat from the tree. Mm. Does that make any sense? Mm. So that's like Abraham is 
Yeah, Adam can't be the father of five because <laughs> he killed everyone. He killed everyone. <laughs> Adam killed every person that will ever be born on earth. Seed, non-seed, all of them. Talk about a mass murderer. <laughs> yeah. Serial killer. So Adam, Adam killed, Adam killed every person that will ever be born. Because faith can only operate once, when you have the once you have, you have the option to trust in God's plan. Yeah, if they only keep their mouths full. Exactly. When, when are you going to start being vulnerable to eating something else when you've got nothing in your mouth? <laughs> Satan activated their flesh. Free will. They had access to every other fruit. They had, they could have eaten until Exactly. Because remember, it wasn't actually exactly about hunger. Works. It's not that she was hungry and then Satan said, well, this fruit looks better than all the other fruit to eat. Remember, it was about to make one wise. We, we learn everything about how sin works from that first incident. So this is what happens. God doesn't withhold anything from them. The, 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 the garden is still a place in between earth and heaven. The earth and heaven is not separated. They have full access to everything. There's no need. They have no need. And all they Satan comes, Satan comes and he implies Creations. that God has, is withholding something from them. He just implies there's something that God doesn't want you to have. Does that sound familiar? We all, all of us, I remember when I was your age, that was what, that's like God wants to take things away from me. Mm. He doesn't, doesn't want, he doesn't me, want to me to have this. When God has actually provided all things that are good, any experience that we could have in the world, He has a better experience. But then Satan comes and he, that's what He says to her. Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat from the fruit in the, in the garden? He goes like, no, only that one. He says, then we'll die if we eat from that tree. And He says, you surely won't die. So, he says, you will be like God. They're already like God. Yeah. So, he's just implying. So, God, Satan, how does marketing work? Create a need. <laughs> okay, yeah, God said, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I just summed up the whole Bible. But anyway, so, how does marketing need, uh, work? Create a need. So he was the first marketer. He went like, there's a need that you're not aware of. A traveling salesman, if you will.
You cannot use the word Trump in any sentence any longer. The now has a face. That's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. It still works exactly the same way. That thing, that undefined thing that we still have to experience mm. or have, mm. it's undefined. It's not even real. And even if it is defined, you know you can't attain. And so this is how this works from today. He just comes and he says, just feel a need that doesn't exist. Mm. And the moment it says she looked at the tree and considered it good to eat. Yeah, she looked, looked good for and she made, she, made, she made a judgment call. All she did was made, sin didn't even start when she took the bite. It started when she looked and she made her own judgment call. Her will was just activated. The, the moment sin, she thought something apart from what God had said, what God had put in place, that was it. That was just the, the outfit. The whole thing boils down to lay down, we choose to lay down our world. That's why we say we choose to lay our world down. Because any form of self, our own will, good. That's why the law, that's why the law kills. Because it's your will to do good. You can, you can, you can, the will of man can be activated by good things. And once it's activated, it leads to death. The moment that you're operating out of your will, we transgress. We go into the flesh. You cannot activate your will and not go into the flesh. While in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit, we will only know the will of God, which is safe. So that is the law of faith that exists right in the beginning. So faith has never changed. God will reveal His will, and we choose to trust His will, and have nothing besides it. That's it. Next week we'll look at the, all the sins uh, passages again, because we need to fit it together. I hope this, I know this was complicated, did we, did we clarify anything? Or? Yeah, complicated. Good. This actually... Actually, we, we didn't do anything th that Paul didn't do in the book of Romans. We, we, this is exactly the process that he's following in the book of Romans to try and explain to them what's going on. But I'm glad you went back. Thank you. Thank you for going back. Okay. It's actually something that growing up, I was so mad at Adam. He stuffed it up for all of us. But actually, he See, the moment that God created, gave substance to himself, outside of himself, uh, the possibility for another will always existed. And it manifested, and God had a plan for, uh, to get rid of it. So only by manifesting it could it get... Fully. Yeah. It had to be fully ripened so that it could forever be removed. 
So it looks like a long period of time on Earth, but it's actually a blip in time where he just removes the possibility of evil. where it says that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. When you drew the small... Where we could read, oh, so when I respond in faith, then, or when someone responds in faith, you go, ah, see, there's, there's the son of Abraham. So their response in faith is identifying, when actually you can read it another way around and say because they are from, from faith, from the finished work, because they are a part outside of time of that which is eternally his they will respond in faith. How do you know your seed? How would you know if you seed? On the inside of a person, the non-seed or the non-remnant, not even the non-seed, the non-remnant, will know they're supposed to do right, but they will knowingly choose and desire to not serve God. The elect seed will knowingly desire to do to know God and to serve Him, even if, even while they ch they're still choosing not to do so, their desire will be to, to serve Him. So, out of all kinds of motivations, the non-elect will be actively choosing to not serve God, but they won't be able to justify it. They'll, inside, they'll be honest with them and go like, this isn't right. Where the non-elect will we'll justify it. They'll be able to go like, I know this is right, but I can justify why I'm doing it. So, so they'll, they'll be aware of the fact that they're not doing the right thing, but it won't bother them that much. It won't, won't really, but, but, but if the elect, while choosing to do the wrong thing, it will, the inside will want to choose the right thing. That's the difference. That's how every person will know. And I'm not talking about sin and law. I'm talking about doing the will of God or not. Because what if law is no longer applicable? Then all that remains is his will or not his will. So if he goes like, no matter what you do, I'm not going to judge you. Then what? What if God actually comes and says, if you choose to sin, I won't judge you. Then what?
We'll look at that next week. Come next week, because that opens up a question. Now, it's true. Judgment is true. But there's something more to it. There's more to it. If God comes to a person and says, look, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to judge you and punish you. Or you can choose to do the right thing, then I won't punish you. Then, if God had to say that to you personally, how difficult would it be to make that decision? We'd go like, okay, I'll do the right thing. It would be out of fear, not wanting to be judged. But now, you see, this is how God does it. He comes and He says to the elect, I'm not going to judge you. I'm, I'm giving you the free will. The elect have the choice to choose. Choose. They, 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 whatever decision they make is a conscious decision, not influenced by anything else other than themselves. <laughs> other than, this is what it boils down to. God goes like, I'm going to save you anyway, so do with your life what you want. I'm going to save you anyway. What causes someone to still choose to serve God, even if there's no punishment for not serving Him? That's the difference between the elect and everybody else. That's the difference between the elect and everybody. He doesn't come to Abraham and says, Abraham, I've got a list of everything you've ever done. You better serve me. You better serve me. No. <laughs> the Bible says nothing about Abraham's sin. Nothing. That's our, our anchor scripture is, Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. So he goes like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. You are blessed. In the, did you do anything wrong this week? Yes. Why? No, I'm just joking. So God goes like, I'm going to not impute sin to you. And I will save you no matter what you do. And you go like, well, get out of jail free pass, so I might as well do what I do. And then you come and you go like, Lord, how do I serve you? <laughs> why would anybody do that? Mm. It's like, why would turn your back on all the fun you could have out there? Hangovers every morning. Hi, why? Why turn your back on that and go like, how do I serve you? Why? What would cause a sane person to do that? Now, you see, that is the, the wise God. I mean, if he was a God, the God that the world thinks he is, is the one that goes and says, you better serve me or. But the, what the Bible actually really says is that he comes and he says, I'm not going to judge you. And then he turns around and he wa starts walking and he goes, like, he doesn't even check if you're following him. That's the difference between the elect and everybody else. He's not going to nag you, and he's not going to. He'll, he'll, he'll call you, and then he'll carry on. And then somewhere in the future, he'll call you again. But he's not even going to wait and see what you decide to do. He's just going to move on, and you get to follow him or not. The Holy Spirit will keep carrying on. If you, if you get confused, then he's not going to wait for you. Have you noticed how he doesn't wait for you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, amen. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>